morning, everyone. The title of this um, talk is a may seem a, a bit of a strange title, but I'll explain it as we go along. It's a cage went in search of a bird, and it's a quote from um, Franz Kafka. Um, this talk was um, inspired by a a newspaper article which I read yesterday in The Australian, which was written by um, Stan Grant, who many of you might know, who is an ABC journalist and of um, Aboriginal descent. And uh, the name of the article was um, Constrained by Identity. And uh, this article in turn was inspired by his um, grandfather, um, who uh, lived a tribal or semi-tribal life and uh, was a very proud Aboriginal man who, while at the same time recognising the, um, the indignities and injustices which had been uh, heaped on Aboriginal people, was a man of, of great dignity and was a man who sought to have to find solutions rather than someone who was just resentful and caught in the, in the past. And uh, his grandson, Stan, is following in that same strain. But to get, give you a better understanding of where, where this, uh, this quote comes from, a cage went in search of a bird, I'll just read directly from the article. At its worst, the politics of identity um, appears to me like that line from Kafka, a cage went in search of a bird. It is rigid and conformist. It is policed by self-righteous moral and political guardians. Identity has its own orthodoxy. It imposes its own tyranny. And some other quotes from it as well. Identity can kill. Think of Hutu versus Tutsi in Rwanda. Hindu pitted against Muslim in India, Catholic and Protestant in Ireland. Identity spawned in history and nourished on violence can exert a deadly hold. And further, for the last quote about looking at the difference between um, altruists and narcissists in the way that people engage in, in political activism is that altruists look to a solution uh, whereas a narcissist just rakes over the past. Um, altruists want to share, narcissists want to exclude. Someone with an altruistic vision wants to work together. Those with a narcissistic view want to gang, gang up. Those who are altruistic in their aspiration are united by values, and those who are narcissistic in their aspiration are united by race and culture. Um, also, to add another one to it, um, people who are motivated by altruism in political activism um, see others having a right to dissent, but when it's narcissistic, anyone who disagrees with you is a traitor. They're the kind of uh, different ways in which we can approach public life. And this, this um, talk is not about, it's not about politics so much or my political views. But it's about seeing how the public and the personal kind of um, come from the same root, really. 
But one reflection at first I want to go into, um, which, which in a sense is a political view, and I, I presume it's one that we all hold, is that we, we all live um, in a liberal democracy, liberal in the sense of, you know, recognising the rights of the individual. And I've been doing a lot of reflecting on this lately and on, on politics and recognising um, how grateful I am and how much I've take it, taken it for granted that I live in a country which is a liberal democracy and not a dictatorship. Um, it's something It's just, we've grown up with it, we take it for granted, um, but when you reflect on it, it's something that we should be extremely grateful for. Also, as we just recently had um, Anzac Day, um, when I was younger, uh, my view of Anzac Day was just a glorification of war. Um, now that I've had time to reflect on it more, um, it could be that for some people, but it's a time to remember um, people who have died to protect our, our freedom. Not all wars, but if you think of the war where there was potentially a Japanese invasion during the Second World War and the Pacific War, um, if things hadn't quite gone differently, we could have been invaded by the Japanese and it probably would be a kind of a dictatorship. And um, if, that, if that had happened, ironically, we might be doing Zazen here today <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. Uh-huh. Because during the Second World War, the, the Japanese government thought of Zazen as their secret weapon that they were going to defeat the enemy with because they made all the factory workers do Zazen and the military do Zazen so that they would be more efficient. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's not too wild a, a view to think that if we had been invaded, we might be doing Zazen for all the wrong reasons, to become efficient, uh, not to become awakened and to be little factory slaves for the state. And there is a huge difference, do you know, in being able to choose to do this wonderful practice rather than it being enforced on you by anyone. It's the whole difference. I remember too, thinking of um, <coughs> Anzac Day and, um, and the war with the Japanese, is that I have had an uncle, my mother's brother, um, who fought on the Kokoda Trail. And... Um, my mother went, and many years later, you know, like 20, 30 years after the war, my mother went to Japan as a tourist and my uncle wouldn't speak to her for two years. He knew I practised in Buddhism. He wouldn't even look at me. I was a persona non grata. Mm-hmm. And that's how, how war and politics and so on can divide people into identity, them and us, traitors, etc. I was a traitor to him. Um, ironically, um, or by contrast, um, Robert Aitken, who was my first Zen teacher, um, was a prisoner of war to the Japanese um, in Guam. He was imprisoned in uh, Guam at the at very um, beginning of the war and he was there for five years in an internment camp. And yet he embraced Zen Buddhism, became a Zen teacher. Stockholm syndrome. Well, <laughs> that's what I have to be on that. 
But the important thing here, what I want to emphasise, is that we're talking about the world stage and politics and public life. Um, but you can't separate the two. And that statement, a cage went in search of a bird, is true not just as a statement about identity politics, but about personal identity and about the nature of our practice. Because if I could extend the metaphor a little bit further, when we were children, we were free of a history of resentment and we didn't have any fixed viewpoints about life. And then as we grew up, suddenly and gradually, we got encaged, imprisoned by greed, hatred and ignorance, a sense of identity forms and a sense of separateness. It's basic Buddhist psychology. You know? And so we kind of were like a cage in search of a bird. And the bird metaphorically is our true nature or our unconditional being or our Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it. And it's been caged. Mm -hmm. And we encage it, we imprison ourselves. And the, the very core of this practice is to recognise that we have imprisoned ourselves, but we could be free at any moment. Or even so, even though we might be a bird in a cage, we can still be a free bird in that cage. Uh -huh. If we just see our unconditional nature just as it is, even though we're constrained by our circumstances in some way, it's seeing that right there, um, there is the unconditional self, unconditional being. And to hark back to what Stan Grant said about his grandfather, is that despite the indignities that were done to Aboriginal people, for his grandfather, being Aboriginal was like breathing. It's just natural. Mm -hmm. Never never had any any um, any sense of better or worse or higher or lower or whatever. Just being Aboriginal. Mm -hmm. Just being your own Buddha nature, being your unconditional being is what we return to without being caged. Now, one of the things that Joko, my teacher, said about Zen practice, which is a very core statement about it, she talked about the, the ABC of practice. You might have read it in one of her books. What ABC means, it's not linear progression, um, a bigger container, mm -hmm. a bigger container. And so it's, it's, it's a statement that um, uh, is uh, about what our aspiration in Zen practice is. We actually start off in a small container, a very limited container. We're in the cage, we're in the cage of this is my identity and I've got to protect it in some kind of way. And as we practice, like we're practicing today, that identity expands, breaks down the them and us, breaks down, do you know? But not just at a political level, do you know, in, in terms of divisions we have with partners, do you know, or children or family members or in-laws or neighbours, do you know? It's that personal, it's not just, it's not just public. And that's what we examine in Zen practice. Um, one of the, I think, one of the characteristics which is there in all human beings to one degree or another, which keeps driving this um, separateness and suffering along, 
is um, resentment, you know, and resentment that we can all um, accumulate from the past, you know, and builds up in terms of um, the cards that we've been dealt with in life. But from a Zen point of view, it's not the cards you're dealt with that is really the issue, it's how you play your hand that you were dealt. Mm -hmm. um, but it's so easy to go down that pathway of ruminating on, reflecting on negative things that happened to us. They might have been outrageous. They may have been the outrageous um, uh, slings and arrows of misfortune, right? But the challenge is whether we, we create a, a narrative around that and hold to it and feed it, right? Or whether we're, whether we're looking at another way, you know, looking at another way that, that moves beyond that and is not stuck in that. But it would seem to me that resentment is what, it's kind of like a feedback loop, but it's kind of like resentment, the holding on to the past in a, in a, in a negative, angry way, um, is what feeds greed, hatred and ignorance. And it's like a feedback loop, it just keeps going round and round and round in a circle with all the suffering that's there. Again, personal, not just political. Mm -hmm. And our practice, one aspect of our practice is to, to recognise that resentment when it's there, when it arises. It ar it's arisen in all of us, including me, at some point in our life, sometimes strong, not so strong. And probably the first point of practice in terms of acknowledging it <coughs> is one that we don't want to acknowledge it. We probably need to recognise we don't want to acknowledge it and, and that there's a part of us, if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't want to let it go. Mm. We don't want to let it go. We've got to, got to acknowledge that that's part of the, the nature of holding on to resentment. But if you look into it just with um, objective mindfulness and you just stay with the experience, recognise, not feeding it, but just recognising that it's there, then there is a chance for another glimmer of something to arise, some, some light to come into it rather than just darkness, and to recognise that it's pointless, you know, that it just perpetuates your own suffering and the suffering of others. It's pointless, right? It has, has no constructive outcome to it at all. It's not as though grievances, grievances don't need to be acknowledged, just like the Aboriginal people need to acknowledge that grievances, genuine grievances, happen to them. Right? But how do we deal with it? Do we deal towards solution or do we just get stuck in separateness? People do it in various different ways. Some people never protest, they're just quiet and never say anything, and, um, but just brood um, in resentment in a, in a private kind of way. And some people are just always outraged and, and so easily offended all the time and letting everyone know how, how outrageous it is they've been treated. There is a, a saying I came across the other day um, that a friend said to me, um, we have a right to be offended, but we don't have a right to always be offended. Because that, that stance of always being offended and always looking for being offended um, is what keeps the identity going and feeds the resentment. Um, one of the um, sutras that we have 
um, Tuare Zenji's Bodhisattva's Vow that we recite sometimes. There's some lines in that which really, um, really get a reaction from everyone at some point in time. Um, they're those lines, I can't remember them exactly, but even though someone may be a fool and persecute you with, a, with um, abusive language, is to remember that they're the merciful avatar of Buddha. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people have a lot of difficulty with those lines. And some people have left them practice because of it, right? And um, really when we think about it, those lines, it's not Zen training 101 really to actually implement that in your life. But what it is, um, and it does need to be used discerningly, but it, it is a kind of antidote to this knee-jerk reaction that we all can have to being offended. It's another way of looking at it. And it, it's got a resonance with um, the, the Christian saying, you know, to turn the other cheek. Now, it needs qualification, but if our, our knee-jerk egoistic reaction is always to be, to be offended, mm-hmm, then at least to have, look at it this other way is a way of at least um, just seeing that it's life presenting itself. Um, we don't necessarily have to take everything personally. When we're clinging to an identity, everything is taken personally. Whereas sometimes just, to use the expression, shit happens. And we happen to be there when it happens. Mm-hmm. But there is another way of looking at it when we see that, um, yes, someone may be foolish in what they're doing, but that's how life is presenting itself right at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not Zen Training 101. It's, it, takes, it takes years of practice and maturity to actually implement that into, into your practice. And at least, like I've said many times, I don't want Zen people who do Zen Training to be um, doormats. There is a time for speaking up, you know, when, when grievance occurs. But something like this teaching gives us a background and it means that we at least pause before we react so we've got a chance to respond, you know, and respond in a way which is constructive rather than just getting caught up in the whole cycle of um, hatred, you know, and, and hostility and separateness. And that, it, um, that its intention is to lead to a resolution or a recognition of our fundamental togetherness rather than our fundamental separateness. So, this talk's not just about public life, it's about seeing how our personal life and our Zen practice life is actually um, can't be separated from the public and sort of larger society or life that we live in. Um, but I guess we start from where we are and we start from this place of being an individual and recognising how we may be um, caught um, in our own um, self-centred dream. And through recognising that, 
What are we going to do about it? Thank you.